Hi, Shelf. Talk oh. Radio. There we go. <laughs> Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a book, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. Good morning, everyone. This is Fran Lewis. This is MJ Network. And we're calling you from freezing Westchester, but the sun is shining. And this is going to be, like I said on my promo yesterday, a blockbuster show because we have the author of... From the winter winters witness, and that just sort of fits today because it's definitely winter out there. <laughs> and we're going to meet Bianca St. Dennis, and she's searching for a job and seeking for acceptance in her new home in Batavia on the Hudson. And Agatha Miller, well, there's a nun that's murdered, and we'll get into that in just a minute. So, good morning, <laughs> Tina. How are you? Oh, good morning, Fran. I'm great, actually. Thank you for asking. How about you? I hear you're cold, huh? Yeah, I'm freezing out here, but you're freezing where you are too, probably. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> I'm tell us the history not, I'm, of I'm, this town of Batavia, and why do you decide to write about the Catskills? Because that's what that's what made me want to read it. Seriously. Well, you know, I'm I'm glad to hear you say that. We were chatting a little bit about that before we went went live. I think that um, the Catskills for New Yorkers is sort of a you know it's a nostalgic place. Many of us have spent summers there, and I did too. I I I went up to the Catskills every um, summer of my childhood, and I had relatives who owned um, one of those resorts, you know, like a dirty dancing resort, and then as I got older, I'd work there, and um, so I had these great memories of the area, so about six or seven years ago, my husband and I moved up there for, for permanently instead of just visiting, and um, I just... I just love it. And, and what I found was very much like Bianca, my protagonist, I started walking the paths and the, the you know, the, the whole neighborhood. And it's just so beautiful. And I was taken by the beauty, by the nature. But at one point, one day early into my move, I realized that it wasn't just a beautiful place. It was also a really interesting place to, to stage murders. Um, because mm-hmm. I had been planning on working on a murder mystery. I wanted an amateur sleuth, and I hadn't decided on a setting yet. And I realized that just in my walks alone, I pass an abandoned quarry, um, an, you know, an aging, my family's aging resort that is sort of in limbo at the moment, you know, winding roads, feeding pickup trucks, um, deserted paths. And I see you know, there are waterfalls, and this, the lake is so deep. And I said, there are, I could write a hundred of them. I said, this is where I'm going to set my, you know, the, the other thing is I always wanted to live in Mayberry. When I was a child, I loved, <laughs> I loved watching Mayberry because I, this whole idea of a small town, the dynamics of a small town is what I really mm-hmm. wanted. And so I created um, a village of my own. Rather than setting it in my, my actual village that I live in, I created Batavian Hudson. And what I did is I took all the fav- my favorite parts of the villages in the area, and I laid them out on a map. I created this, took out this big sheet mm-hmm. of graph paper and 
laid out the main street and Van Patten and the center of town and Stella's and I put everything out on the map, drew it up. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, the artist who does my cover art did the map for me for the opening pages of the book. And, and right now she's doing a colorized version of, of it. And I love maps. I happen to, I happen to love maps. So that's really how it came about that I just got, I just so fell in love with this small town life and all these possibilities of where I could set these murders, and, and that's how Batavian Hudson was created. Well, I, I love the map because I was able to see, like, I felt like I was in the town. So that made yeah. it more, you know, interesting. It made it easy for me to understand, especially poor Agatha. I loved Agatha. But I know. <laughs> one thing about small towns, and, yeah, um, the bungalow colony that I stayed at, everybody knew everybody else's business. As a matter of fact, that's right. I never got in trouble because there was always somebody looking over my mother's shoulder to see what I was doing, or anybody <laughs> else. Seriously. That's right. So tell us about the people in this town and how come they were such gossipers, which, of course, people love to gossip and not always the right way, but how come? Sure. Well, you know, I'm, not, I'm not so sure that they actually think of it as gossiping because everybody's business so ends up becoming everybody else's business because everybody's so intertwined, yeah. right? Um for a brief while, um, when I was about 12, I lived in the town I'm living in now. My parents moved up there for a little while to try it out. It didn't work out for them. Um, unfortunately, there's never quite enough work up there. But um, but we did stay for a year, and I loved it, and I did seventh grade up there. And the, I realize now that when you go to a school like that, there were only 150 students in the whole school from 7 through 12. You know everybody's parents because one parent is a pharmacist and one parent is a librarian and one parent works at the post office. And, you know, everybody, mm-hmm. you can't help being intertwined. Everybody in high school dates each other. Um, you know, all their kids date each other. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you're talking about your about people. You don't even, I'm not even so sure they consider it gossiping. I mean, Claire, my particular character that I consider the gossip monger in the community, mm-hmm. is a gossiper. Um, but she ha- she does it for a different reason. I think she she gossips because it makes it it, it put, gives her a little bit of importance, right? She doesn't have mm-hmm. anything to claim as special, and this is what she's good at. She's good at getting scoops faster than anyone else. And I know some people like that who want to be the first ones to tell you about something, to, uh-huh. to know about something. And so I think for her, it's a matter of attention and knowing that if you need to know something, you go ask Claire. Um, but I think that in general, in, a, in an intimate community like the one I created in Batavia and Hudson or the one I'm living in at Actuality, um, we just know everybody. You know, you'll say, did you hear that so-and-so got a promotion? Or did you see the new car so-and-so has? Or, you know, did you, did you hear that so-and-so is having a baby? And it's sort of just news, but sometimes it devolves into gossip, right? What can, what can I say? Well, I know I had a friend that lived in the old building in the Bronx that unfortunately she passed away. And if there was something that had to be known, she would call and tell me. And, right. you know, sometimes you want to hear it. And basically, I don't like to listen to gossip about other people. But the first scene really got me. Tell us how you created the first scene with poor sister Elaine, and why was that the first scene? And everybody thought it was a murder, but it was linked to the burglaries. That's so sad. Right. Um, 
I know. I like Sisterling too, and I hate I hated to because I had developed her and I was going to work with her, but she ended up dying in the first pages because I realized yeah. that it was a really good way to set up the whole book. It by mm-hmm. the sheriff being there and recognizing that she's been murdered, we learned two things. Um, we learned through his eyes just how disruptive this murder is. Murder doesn't happen, right? So in, in mm-hmm. a small town like this. So you learn that right away, and it gives you the, the feel for just how small a town it is. And then since we've come to learn that murder doesn't happen in such a small town, he then, through his eyes and his musings, we learn just how peaceful a town it is and just why this is such a big deal. Not that murder isn't always, I mean, it's always a big deal. Of course it is. But we learn just how um, there's nothing more disruptive, I'm going to say, than having a nun murdered, especially one as kind and gentle as Elaine was, as he remembers her. Um, and so I thought it would be a good way to, 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 to propel everybody right into Batavian Hudson. Here we are. It's such a great little idyllic town, sleepy town. Nothing happens um, except murder of a nun in, you know, open mm-hmm. pages of the book. Um, that was my thinking, and, I mean, she was going to go at some point in the book, <laughs> so I just mm-hmm. I moved her up. I think that's really what it boils down to. Well, we and, have, uh, like, one of my favorite characters. I like Bianca to a point. And she returned to this town where she lived with Richard. Hmm. Well, and then there's Rebecca. Oh, God. Right. And yes. she was a real estate agent who seemed to have a thing for men. So sad. So tell us about Rebecca and Bianca. And um, Rebecca had a son that needed a little help here. Yeah, well, um, so Bianca is with Mike, the two main characters, uh, Mike the sheriff, are the two main characters. So Bianca and and Richard moved to this small town and Unfortunately, she loses Richard shortly after. There's a big age difference between them, and he, you know, he dies unexpectedly. So now she and she, she didn't really the couple as a couple didn't really mingle that much. They retired early to come up to this quiet town. He was ready to retire. She needed to write, and he wanted to give her that opportunity to write. So they did this. But once he passed on, she realized that if she wanted to stay in this town, she had to make a place for herself. And so that's really who she is and why she's in this town. That's not the town she's normally from, not her native town, right? Rebecca's also an outsider. Um, she's not as uh, new to the town as Bianca is, but um, she's not somebody who grew up with everybody else there. And she married um, Owen, and she married into this very, um, what do you call it, like a very respected family, an old town family. And she has a certain way about her that I always consider like her armor. She uses her look. She's really attractive. And she kind of um, pumps up that attraction with very alluring clothing. And she's in, she's in a real estate agent. She's in the public eye all the time. And she kind uh-huh. of uses this as a way to, I don't know, increase sales perhaps. She never acts. It doesn't sound to me, I don't see her as somebody who necessarily acts on any of this alluring sex appeal, but she does use it a little bit, right? 
And um, yes, she, she doesn't does. really love it even. She even kind of second guesses herself and says, you know, she's gone too far down this this path, and she doesn't really love it. She doesn't like. Well, she has a son, and she defends him like all parents defend their sons. And he really needed exactly. a smack in the head, this kid, yeah. So tell us yeah. about Sister, a- a- Sister Elaine, and why did the sheriff might think it was just a burglary gone bad? Wake up, sheriff. Well, the thing is, yeah, I think that has a lot to do with the fact that um, it's sort of a logical conclusion because, as we've learned, that um, – it's a small, sleepy town. These kinds of things don't happen. It's not any big murder conspiracy. He can't imagine that. She has a valuable family heirloom ring that she, she wears, and everybody knows, like we said, everybody knows everything in the small town, and that's why everybody in the town is a suspect in a way. Um, and so she has this valuable ring that's missing after she's been found. Mm-hmm. So because the ring is missing, the, because the ring is missing, the assumption is that um, – the purpose, the whole reason this happened was somebody was trying to steal the ring. Maybe she's known, Elaine was known for being quiet and gentle, but she also wasn't somebody you messed with, and she was a little person, but maybe she resisted. Maybe she was, uh, maybe she fought back and possibly got hurt. You know, there would be no reason to murder someone who's small and frail, but to get a ring, you could just take a ring, right? And that was one of the things that Bianca wondered. Like, why would yeah. somebody kill her if they wanted the ring? They could take the ring, right? Um, so, yeah, Well, you need a reason to murder somebody. You can't just murder them. Well, you could if you hate them, but you needed a reason. Well, that, right. At least that gave him a reason to right. kill her, yeah. Right, and That's so sad. for no other motivation. So his thinking is the first, at least he has to conclude, is maybe a mugging gone bad. Doesn't suspect anything more sinister until more pieces start coming together. So where's my next question right here? There are two places that everybody goes to, Stella's and Ruby's. Why did everybody sort of gravitate to Stella's more than Ruby's? Well, well, Rudy's is a market. It's a marketplace. So it's it's made to be cozy because they're – uh, Trudy and Rudy run the place and, you know, Trudy makes home-baked German cookies and cakes and fresh ground coffee so that while customers are perusing the shelves, they can be comfortable. But it's still just a market. So people chat and people linger. Um, but Sellers is really the heart of the town. That's where people can sit and linger for even longer. Everybody goes to Stella's at least once a day. That's my that's that's how I envision it. I'm sticking to that. Um, it's and although we don't know that much about Stella, and we'll know learn more about her in future books. Um, mm-hmm. Eugene runs Stella's, and he ran it with his wife. Um, and Stella's was really Stella herself. The person was greatly loved, and so was Eugene. You know, these are warm, kind people, and. Um, it's just, it's right at the center of the town. If you look at the map, Stella's is located right there at the crossroads. And um, people just sell in. Every town has a hub. And in the mm-hmm. Indian Hudson, that hub is Stella's. So we've got Bianca talking to Eugene. Who is he? And then you've got a whole bunch of other characters here Claire, Bird, Ernie, Olivia, Olivia, and Emily. But who is Eugene? So Eugene is. Um, he runs Stella's Diner, and he is 
um, like I said, he's like mm-hmm. a bartender, right? Stella's is like Cheers. It's like the, the place everybody goes to. And so Eugene, I think it's part of the reason why Stella's is so popular. He's a very good listener, like a good bartender would be. He's a really good listener, very kind and very helpful, and um, makes great food, except he burns the toast. And, um, and I think that he is a, because he's a widower, and because Bianca is a widow, they are finding some commonality in that grief and that, you know, that, that place that their heart resides that they can sort of share a little bit in. And, um, and then Claire, she's the, the neighbor who is the gossip monger, right? And like I mentioned earlier, this is her way to place herself, give herself a sense of importance in the village. Um, and, you know, she's known for her cooking and she's, uh, known for her fishing. She's a fishing champion. She wins at the tournament every year uh, because she grew up at her father's sea, who was a great fisherman. And um, mm-hmm. and she has had a, she's had a crush on Bert, the local handyman, forever. And since grammar school, and hasn't had the nerve to tell him. But apparently, Bert is the only one who doesn't know she has this crush. Um, you know, he's a, a just a regular old guy. He's a terrific guy but he has his issues he has a breakup with his wife and he drinks and he drinks too much and he has blackouts and that those blackouts make him a character that is unreliable right and you know mm-hmm. even his even his friends wonder you know if he could have anything to do with any of the problems that are happening he's in dire straits financially um, he doesn't always make great choices. He has a tendency of making bad choices, in fact. Yep. Um, can't seem to get out of his own way. Um, you know, there's Ernie. He's the first guy that Bianca ever met. First person she met in the village at all when she mm-hmm. happened upon it by accident. Um, he's a local landscaper, but he's like this person who um, – she remembers him because he said he chooses to be happy. You know, he's had some horrible things happen in his life, and he's, he's come to the conclusion that these kinds of things have to be chosen. You have to choose to go forward in a joyful way. And so she gets to Batavian Hudson that first time, and she meets him. He kind of forces her to open her eyes and see more clearly what's around, and she realizes that this is a really very special place. And she brings Richard back to visit, and that's how they decide um, to live there, and um, who else do we say? Oh, Olivia. Olivia is, I think what we're going to see over the next few books is that Olivia will be Bianca's closest friend mm-hmm. of, um, female friends at least, of the villagers, and she's, um, she works at the Gazette, at the newspaper, um, and that's useful for Bianca, who is a natural sleuth, so she gets this, you know, between Claire, her neighbor, who gives her gossip, and Eugene, who gets the info from the the diner, and now Olivia, who works at the newspaper, she's got lots of people who can kind of feed her information. And, um, and uh, Olivia's a cancer survivor, so mm-hmm. she, Bianca's really drawn to her nature, the way she's kind of learned to approach life differently since she's been given a clean slate. She, she has like a fresh look, and it's very zen, I guess, and Bianca finds her very calm and reassuring. She's one of those glass half full kind of people. And um, oh, and she also she started the 
called the local, the ladies of a certain age league. And these women who end up not being of a certain age after a while, they, they induct Emily and other people who aren't quite of the right age. Mm-hmm. But the idea was for women to be independent and they learn to take care, you know, do things like I think they were learning how to sweat pipes and lay tile and they, they mm-hmm. go on interesting trips. They want to go skydiving and, you know, they just want to break out of that need to rely on anybody else. And so Bianca becomes a local um, because of Olivia. And, uh, and I think you mentioned Emily, right? Emily. And Emily's well, just a teenager. Yeah, I know. Um, this, this, is a this is what made it really market. interesting, is that you created another problem in the story. Okay. So it wasn't just sister, sister uh, the, the sister's death, Sister Elaine's death, but the townspeople were having a disagreement about gambling casinos, a major project that would bring money and tourists. So who agreed? Why did some people want it, and how come people don't? A lot of people in Catskills didn't want it either, the gambling casinos, but they're there now. Yeah, and I think that that's such a true-to-life problem. Um, again, I'm living in a village in the Catskills right now, and there are other projects like this that come up that, you know, we all want to get along, and we all do get along, but we don't agree on everything. And everybody has different reasons, and there aren't any real clear lines. So you can have locals, the native locals, who some agree mm-hmm. and some don't. It's not just a question of insider-outsider. Um, sometimes the lines are drawn there. So with the casino and condo development that's proposed for mm-hmm. Batavia, part of the problem is there are people who um, don't want change, right? And that could be the new people who say, I came here like the Blanchards. They're very wealthy. I came here to be in this quiet neighborhood. I don't want to, I might as well stay where I was if we're going to change it, you know. Um, and Bianca, for that matter, would rather it stay the same because she too moved up there for a certain type of an environment. But then you have people who, you know, Bert, who always needs work, and people like him who say, you know, this is going to bring, this is going to bring money to the area. We need that. You know, we're suffering. And so you have mm-hmm. different, different, um, approaches. You know, you have natives like um, Eugene, for example, would benefit from more tourism, but he doesn't want more people in his diner. He want, he likes it just the way it is. He, met, he pays his bills, and he likes the view. If they put this building up on the bluff, then his view will change, and that's how Ernie feels. He walks his dog along the, the bluff every day. He says, well, I don't want that, you know, I don't want that gone. I That's too valuable to me. I don't, I'm not rich, but I'll do with what I have. So they don't agree, and for some people, it's livelihood, so it matters a great deal. But well, they have, the, you know, like in all towns, when I moved up here, the same thing. Why does it appear that in a new town or a new city or a new place, the uh, Bianca was not accepted, and, and that you know, but by those that lived there all their lives, a lot of times people that are new are not really accepted. How come? And why didn't they accept her? Well, I think that it's an evolution, and I think that it's not so much that they don't accept her. She she perceives it as being not accepted, right? But it's really about maybe keeping her a little bit at arm's length 
and mm-hmm. like new people kind of have to earn their spot. They're a little suspicious. Like, why are you here? Like, why would you come here? Why this particular town? Yeah. You know, going back to the, the changes that um, the develop, development might bring, um, for example, right? Gentrification and stuff like that that the natives aren't always, you know, in agreement about. So there's a little bit of, well, let's sit back and see who she is. And so, of course, she wants to be accepted right off the bat, but she's got to earn it. And um, I think it's not just her, but any new arrival. Some of them, like the sheriff, right, he's rather new. Um, And sometimes it seems that they're not so sure if he's up to the job. And you take the doctor, um, Robert Spencer, he's new. And you can hear the gossip about, well, you know, I miss my old doctor. I'm not going to go to this young fellow. I mean, he's just too young. What does he know, you know? So there's this, just people are sometimes so resistant to change and newbies, new people to community are, are changed. So I think it also has to do with, like I said, earning your spot. Bianca decides that she's either going to be very alone or she's got to kind of insinuate herself in there. And I know locals, like where I... When I moved up, um, I started working at the library shortly after I, I moved up there. And I feel like I know everybody, and everybody knows me. And so I feel like I'm a lot more, I don't want to use the word accepted, but I'm more a part of the community. And I have mm. some friends who've moved up that don't mingle very much, and they kind of stay on the outside. And, you know, it's a matter of choice, I guess. I guess. So another character that I liked, poor Agatha, um, was Agatha. Agatha, Agatha. How did, wh- tell us about Agatha's notes of her diary that shed light on her past for Bianca. And then poor Agatha, so sad. <laughs> uh, yeah, Agatha, I felt so bad. I liked her, too. You mean never carried them for single. But they made sense, <laughs> by the way. Mm. I'm glad to hear that. Um, yeah, Agatha had a long and painful journey, and um, and she she documented that. She she kept journals. She was a historian also, and it's one of the reasons why Bianca and Agatha become close. It's rather unlikely because Agatha doesn't seem to get close to anyone. Um, yeah, she has built she's built a wall because her family history was complicated. When her family came up, the whole intention was to restart the tannery business. They started developing the town. They built company housing. They brought workers in. They were doing good things for the community, and then it all went south. And that brought shame on Agatha's mother. A father disappeared. Mm-hmm. Agatha's mother is just so, I don't know, traumatized by the whole experience. And, um, and, and Agatha sort of takes on that shame. And she has more that goes on in her life, too, that gives her shame and and causes her to sort of um, close herself off a little. And, you know, she's considered rather cantankerous and difficult, and, um, and she wants it that way. She's, she's afraid of letting people in. And so her relationship with Bianca is unusual because she feels like she can confide in Bianca. And I attribute that to the fact that Bianca doesn't have a history with the community. Right, she doesn't really know Agatha's past. Mm. Doesn't judge her. It didn't affect her life negatively or her parents' life negatively in any way, and so they they make this this friendship. And so these journals get passed on to Bianca, 
who is also a historian, and um, and she's a she's a writer, and she's looking to write a historical novel or a novel, maybe not historical, but when she meets Agatha and she starts to hear Agatha's stories, every time mm. she sits with her, she's she's um keeping her company through her illness, and um, she realizes that there's a perfect story to be told here if Agatha's willing, and, um, and Agatha lets her do it, right? So lets her, and so she, she can try, she, she, she bestows upon her all these great journals and notes and things that she has, and Bianca gets this, like, windfall of information where she can dig and write her book. And it's interesting because it's hard to do what you did. I mean, first we have you know, the Sister Elaine, who I really liked, the first scene, then poor Agatha, and then we learn about Agatha because if a character is going to you know, get killed or whatever, and you write the diary, at least we get to know who she was or who she is. So that's, that's not easy to do. And considering yeah, how many books I've read recently, that wasn't easy to do. And at least, well, at least I was, it was easy to follow. You should see some of the times I go like, huh? Did you really do that? I hate when somebody writes <laughs> something, and in the middle of the of the middle of the page, they switch to someplace else. Then another scene in another voice, and I go, "It's a good thing I read a lot." God. So, <laughs> my question, oh, Claire. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, let me tell you something. I wouldn't even tell you. See, my books are written from the point of view of the dead person behind the stone, and oh. the new one is written from the point of view of dead people. It's, they can't they can't argue with somebody that's dead. It's what they said. No. What can I say? It works for me. So with my question, Claire, why did she lie for Bert, and how come Bianca told on her? Uh, you know, yeah, that's Bianca an interesting tell on people. question. I have yeah. a friend of mine who was beta reading for me for my, for my book, and when she got to that segment, she said, why? Why did Bianca tell on Claire's and Bert's lie? I said, well, yeah, there are reasons. You know, she was so astounded. But this is the reason, the reasoning, in my opinion, right? Claire mm-hmm. lies to Bert because, well, first of all, we know she's in love with him, and she just she yeah. she's very protective of him, and she feels like she knows better. And so Bert's been acting strange, stranger than normal, right? She knows he drinks, mm-hmm. knows he has this drinking problem, and she's worried that perhaps the reason he's behaving so strangely is because maybe he actually has something to do with this. And she gets protective, going back to, like, Rebecca and her son, right? Why does Rebecca mm-hmm. protect Trevor? And it's the, sort of the same kind of dynamic. So she just jumps in out of, um, you know, in, in, in impulse and decides to cover for him and say, no, that, you know, he spent the night and um, and he goes along because he's sort of taken by surprise. And Claire is a very forceful, has a forceful personality. And I also suspect that for Claire, it was kind of titillating, sort of fun to imply that she and Bert had spent the night since, you know, she has these feelings for him and, and, and confiding, so-called confiding in the sheriff about their little secret kind of made it a little bit true for her. And I, I don't think she regretted um, – covering for him and she might even have enjoyed it and at the same time now Bianca overhears which by the way is sort of a running joke in Batavia Hudson because everybody overhears everything all the time right so she Mm -hmm. overhears Claire lie and and she feels that she really doesn't have too much of a choice but to say something because basically for Bianca Mm -hmm. 
she's making friends with everybody, but basically everybody's an un- unknown quantity to her. She, they seem like nice, nice people, but is there something she's missing? And she feels like she knows she has some information and she shouldn't keep mm-hmm. it to herself because even though they seem like friends, maybe there's something to this. And if there isn't, then there isn't, and that's okay, right? So she... I chose her as my character as an amateur sleuth because I feel like as a historian, she's very good at putting connections together. She's very observant. Um, that's her nature. She's good at noticing things. And, um, and she's an outsider, which gives her fresh eyes. So maybe if, if that conversation had been overheard by a local, they may not have thought anything of it other than, oh, Bert and Claire are sleeping together, right? But they mm-hmm. might not have said, oh, they're lying because Bianca's so observant. She noticed that the truck wasn't there, and she noticed that there were no tracks in the snow in the morning, and that the story didn't jive. And she remembers because she's just good at that. And she has fresh eyes as an outsider, so she's not willing to look the other way just because they're friends. So she decides to tell the sheriff because she feels it's important information. She mm-hmm. knows they lied. He has no reason to think they would lie. Um, so like I said, I had a friend who was appalled, but, you know, mm-hmm. Bianca, to do if you have information that could lead to <laughs> solving a murder, right? Yeah, well, they have this thing, you know, I was reading a thousand books this week, and one that I read yesterday, <laughs> and it says, when you see something, say something. And I'm reading right. something this morning. Um, it's, called, it's, it's, it's by Brad Taylor. It's really good. American Trader. And the character mm. sees something and says something, and he saw he did. That's all I'm going to say about oh. that. Yeah, oh, it's, that's it's, I've got some. I've got some interesting ones, but there's no happy books. I do not have anything happy. No. No, I have no. one about a girl well, to, that admits herself to a mental institution. I've I've got his, and I've got a few others. Um, Kingdom, the uh, Electric Kingdom, and oh, it's, it's yeah. I'm interviewing the oh, Daniel David Arnold. I'm interviewing him in June. I'm getting very popular. Um, so, I think you are. I think so. <laughs> what emotional <laughs> problems come out about Bianca? And what was she writing in her notes? And what, is, what do we hope that she does with it? Well, Bianca, like all of us, has her issues, right? So mm-hmm. most immediately she's trying to fit into the community and, you know, she second guesses whether she fits in. And I kind of, relate to this because I moved a great deal my whole life first as a young person and then as a as an adult and you know always in a new community and and it does if you don't have tough skin after a while you wonder you know do you really fit in and so that's her immediate thing trying to make a place for herself there mm-hmm. um, her bigger issue is really that she hasn't she isn't ready to grieve yet she lost her husband about a year before uh, the story mm-hmm. takes place, and, and she's not really willing to do that. And I, she, she believes that grieving is going to make it just too concrete. Um, so instead, she talks to his, his photos. She has one in every room of the house so that they can talk mm-hmm. like they always do because the relationship was built on all this intimacy. And so she talks to him and asks for his advice and, you know, assumes she understands what he would what advice he would give her. And so she kind of avoids the whole subject of her grief. And, and, you know, we know that's not good. And, um, but it's her way of, of dealing with it. And she also feels a little responsible. She wonders that, you know, there were, there were reasons they might have suspected that he had health issues that they didn't. And she wasn't home when he died. And so she has her guilt and, 
And now she has this this unusual um, relationship with the sheriff, right? That she mm-hmm. she sort of insinuated herself into this investigation. But more than that, they they have this like budding attraction, and they both know it, and they're both denying it for different reasons. And she doesn't want to accept it at all that she could possibly have any attraction to somebody while she's, you know, mm-hmm. she's still married. She still loves her husband, right? The way she looks at it, so. She has all these like weird things in her mind. You know, she has financial worries at the time, and she's she also mm-hmm. has confidence issues about her writing because she's tried to get a book sold already that hasn't gone anywhere yet. Now she's working on another one, but she's beginning to question, you know, can she do this? And so she's starting to second guess all her decisions. You know, whether or not she should have retired early, whether or not she should have moved to this town. She doesn't know anybody. Whether or not she should be a writer. What you know. But she has a lot on her plate emotionally, and um, like we all, like we all do, mm-hmm. and um, and then her notebook. So she's a writer, and she has always written, but hasn't always considered herself a writer. But um, for forever, she's kept notebooks in all her pockets and school bags and purses and briefcases, so that she would be at the ready to jot down something interesting, an inspiration, an idea. If she something she can describe it if she and mostly when she overhears and I gave this quality to her because as a writer that's mm-hmm. my strongest thing is jotting things down and um, I found for example I remember shortly after I moved up to the Catskills I was in a, a feed store um, we were trying to get hay it's a long story we keep chickens and we needed some hay or straw. I never get them straight. My husband's the farmer. And um, while we were there, the, the shopkeeper was telling us how the, the, the Department of Conservation had um, been at his house to ticket him for feeding the deer in his yard. You know, you're not supposed to feed the deer. And, um, and he told him, well, I don't know. You've got to get your deer out of my yard because they're in my turkey feed. They're eating my turkey feed. In other words, because you can't ticket me for feeding the deer. I'm feeding the turkeys. And I remember hearing that line and saying, who would even think to say that? And I thought it was such a clever thing, wrong that it might have been, but clever just the same. I've overheard fishermen at the dock by the lake saying things. I have no idea what they're talking about. And I give that little anecdote to, to Bianca where she has to get mm-hmm. Eugene to decipher what he says. So basically her notes are there for her to pull from later for her writing. And um, and I just love that because I think that most writers do things like that. Well, you did something else that a lot of people do that put me to sleep, but it didn't put me to sleep. Seriously, you know, everybody <laughs> has a back. I'm serious. I, I read. I think my husband counted close to twenty thousand books in the last ten years. Seriously. Oh my it's goodness. My I'm serious. It's my mother's fault. Uh, when I was three, I learned to read. When I was eight, I read the classics. And she made me read six books oh a week and take no. Yeah, this is why I, my book reviews actually make sense to me somehow. But wow, this is a small. This is a small town, and everyone knows everyone's secrets. And this was hard, everybody, because very few people could do this. How did you create each one of their special stories that were different, that made it more interesting for me to figure out who the killer was? Um. Well, the first thing I did is that I, as I started writing, I realized that in order to keep this straight and develop my characters properly, Mm -hmm. I'd have to have like a central point of reference. So I created a Bible 
and uh, you know, a, a, a character Bible, and each person has their section in the book, and I would take some time and get to know the character. And, and so I would develop the fact that, for example, you know, Claire's mom died when she was a young girl, and she and her dad, uh, she grew up alone with her dad and took care of him, and he took care of her, and they became close through fishing, and he taught her all her secrets um, for fishing and stuff like that, and she learned to cook because she had to cook for her dad and um, stuff like that, and, and her crush on Bert and um, stuff like that. So I put all of that in the Bible. Same thing with Olivia, um, you know, all her little idiosyncrasies and um, – uh, Lester, who we, he isn't quite as well-developed, but he's, you know, approaching 100 years old. He's a not-so-retired lawyer. He also owns the bait-and-tackle shop, which you don't even know yet. Um, he nurses this skunk back and keeps Dolly as a pet. And, and I put all of these things down, the color of their eyes and, and maybe idiosyncrasies in how they speak or something like that, you know, that Bert's a chain smoker and things like that. And I put it all down in my character Bible and so that I could know these people. And then once I knew them, even if some of that information, like Claire's backstory about her mom dying and, you know, cooking for her dad and getting close to him mm-hmm. with the fishing, doesn't come out in book one. It's back there. So it, 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 it's part of why she is who she is and how she responds to certain situations. So when I put them down on the page – for a scene, they react and do things a certain way that makes sense for that character. And then not all of the backstory that I created will be revealed in that first book. We're not revealed in the first book. Well, may not be revealed in the second book, but some of them do. They get just sort of the stories will peel away a little bit book by book. Um, I mean, right now I have about, I'd say, six stories planned um, in my head for the series, right? I'm working on two and three right now. And some of these pieces of information will make their way out. Mm. Well, I have, before I forget, I don't want to forget. Mm-hmm. On Monday, I have three shows next week. This is rare. But there's a reason. Okay. I never do three, but <laughs> the, the, the last one, I, I couldn't say no. Okay, the Gates of Avalon, the author is here, is told in three timelines. It's really interesting. Paul D. Marks is a very famous publicist. Uh, the Blues don't care. He's going to be on the third. And on the fourth, this is an honor, Iris and Roy Johansson, blink of an eye. Oh. Who could say no to Iris Johansson? And she says she loves me because I know what not to ask. You'd be surprised. <laughs> on the eighth, yeah, on the eighth, uh, Peter Hayes is there. Uh, things that last forever. And on the tenth, yeah, I'm doing here. something extremely different. Last Thursday, I did the Capitol Riots with FBI agent Michael Tabman. It's interesting what people oh. thought. And on the sure. 10th, I'm doing Honoring Men and Women in Blue with Bruce Coffin, David Putnam, and Lancelot Russo. They're going to talk about how cases are handled, how a different perception of the police department. Because they're retired, they could do it. And on the 16th, one of my famous, famous people in the world, John Land, he just took over the Capitol uh, murders, Margaret Truman Capitol murders, murder on the Metro. And that's just some of what's coming up. I want to have to say it on February 24th. I'm hoping it works out, and I hope they still do it. Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child, Scorpion's Tale. What more can I ask for? Oh, that sounds like a terrific lineup, Fran. Yeah, and and I just got John Gilstrop. I just emailed, I just finished his review, and he asked for an interview in June. I wish I could do it before, but I can't. Oh well. So, 
what can, what can I say? I'm going to leave out this question because I think it gives away too much. Um, how did you create okay. the final scene without telling that when the truth comes out? How did you do it without giving it away? And what was the significance of the will? I thought that was really cool, by the way. Um, yeah, well, I wanted, for the final reveal, I wanted it to come through Bianca's eyes. She's my amateur sleuth, and I wanted us to see how she kind of unraveled it. But it, I meant it to be, um, on one hand, methodical, and on the other hand, sort mm-hmm. of suspenseful, you know, like pick up the pace. So I, I made alternating scenes between Bianca and Mike, the sheriff, Mike Riley, and how he also arrives at the same conclusions, but from a totally different angle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always been important to me, and I talk about this. I do a Sleuths and Sidekicks panel. We, um, I, I tour with three other authors, Carol Puglio, Lita Sedaris, and Jen Collins-Moore, and we talk about our Sleuths and their Sidekicks. And we talk about, Jen and I talk about this all the time, that we want to make sure that our authority figures in the story, the, the real investigators, are doing a, a capable, good job of it. It's just that our sleuths are sort of enhancing things. So Mike is also arriving at the same conclusion, but in a different way as Bianca. And I, I make small alternating scenes, so it sort of picks up the pace and starts to unravel a little bit so the reader hopefully is keeping up. Um, and what ends up happening is it's just as finally it will be Bianca's gut that, that reveals it to her. She starts putting together all those loose pieces that were in her head all this time. And one last piece of information, all of a sudden hits her, something she sees and something she thinks about at the same time, puts it all together for her and she realizes she's with the killer and that and what the motivation might have been. Um, and Mike, again, like I said, he comes, but he's just a little bit behind, just a little bit behind Bianca. And um, no. as far as the will, I'm sorry. No, we have another character that we have to bring in. Why doesn't okay. Mike's wife like her? What's her problem with Bianca? Well, because it's hinted throughout the story that the community is starting to know. Again, everybody knows everything. Everybody sees everything. So there's mm-hmm. the community starting to notice that there is an attraction between Mike and Bianca that, even though they're mm-hmm. hiding it, they, everybody else seems to notice it, just like with Bert and Claire. Everybody but Bert knows that Claire has a crush, right? And so mm-hmm. the community realizes it, and so, so does Maggie. Even though Maggie, so Mike's wife, Maggie, she's not home a lot because she works down in the city and she has her, her business down there. So she's not there a lot, but she's beginning to notice that her, Bianca's name comes up more often than it should, and that... Um, people talk about it, and she maybe walks in on them talking, or she finds them too comfortable. And so it makes her a little uncomfortable, but you don't really that, – that needs to be developed further on in other books because um, nobody – Maggie and Bianca's feelings towards Maggie and Maggie's feelings towards Bianca are not really clear early on. And, um, and when mm. Bianca finally meets her, she realizes that she's – so Bianca's a little nervous about – meeting Maggie for the same reason. She claims to not have an interest in Mike, and yet why is she nervous about meeting Mike's wife, right? Well, mm-hmm. he picks up the phone, wants to call Mike, and Maggie answers the phone, and that makes her uncomfortable. So she knows that there's, she's not acting, acting, you know, honestly to herself, right? So she's uncomfortable mm-hmm. with Maggie. But then when she meets her, she finds her to be really delightful and easy to talk to. And, um, you know, so it's kind of a complicated 
thing for her, but she needs to remember that Mar- Mike is married to this particular woman. So there's a bit, but she also knows there's trouble brewing that their marriage is on the rocks. So I don't know. We'll have to well, see. Well, she's got morals. She's got morals. Somebody else would just move right in. Seriously. That's, that's, a lot that's of people true. would just move right in. And I know people like that that would just move right in. I see, and I go into some place every morning. I wouldn't say what, and the person is married. And she, every time my husband walks in, she goes, "Oh, what would you like extra this?" I guess so. He gets stuff for free, literally. (laughs) And I don't say anything. I just crack up laughing. I I mean, I could get a whole bunch of stuff that's twenty dollars, and I'll pay five for it because she gives it to him for free. I don't say a word. Thank you very much. I don't care. (laughs) I I think if I said something, it would probably, you know, like, oh, it bothers you. Like, I don't care. Um, (laughs) So. I I think hilarious. So, is is Bianca going to stay there? Is she going to be the town sleuth? Where do you see her next? I like her though. Ah, well, I like her too. Um, You know, I think she will remain our town sleuth. She doesn't intend to be a town sleuth. She just sort of falls Mm -hmm. into it because, like I said before, she happens to be good at it. Um, she, like I said, she's an outsider with fresh eyes. She's observant. She's a historian. And she knows mm-hmm. a lot more about the village than we might know because she has Agus's journals, which she will continue to read and educate yeah. herself about. And, um, and will he, will Mike let her? Yeah, I think he will because she will, she always seems to come up with valuable information. So sometimes she messes up and she gets into scrapes and she causes him trouble because she doesn't do things right because, of course, she's not. You know, she's not officially supposed to be working on the investigation, yeah. but she knows something. How can she keep it to herself? So there is this push-pull that happens between them, but they complement each other. And um, I think she will continue to work like a sleuth in the in the village, even if, you know, even if she shouldn't be. But I think she will find a way. Yes, she will. She, would she ever write an expose on the town and tell what's really happening? Well, you know, there's so many books to come yet. <laughs> if she yeah. wants to stay in their good graces, I would give her the advice of not writing an expose. Um, but, you know, she's um, she already does – she started writing for the Gazette, and um, she may be doing more of that. And she's working on a book now with Agatha's notes, which will mm-hmm. um, could produce something. And I'm not quite sure where that's going to go yet. There's a lot of developing still going on in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but book two is pretty much done and almost done. And book three is being developed. So, yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure. Who are you bringing back besides Mike? You've got to bring Mike back and his wife. There's got to be some conflict there somewhere. So who else yeah. are you bringing back in the next book? Um, they're pretty much all coming back, except um, because it's it's going to remain in the village. The story is a Batavian Hudson Hudson mystery. Mm-hmm. So, you know the way Louise Penny has her official investigator, you know, there, mm-hmm. and then she has the village, right? All those villagers yeah. are what people are waiting, you know, waiting to revisit the village. So, I want to keep it as intact as possible. Um, I, you know, we have people who have now been murdered and people who have been responsible for the murder. So, you know, there will be some changes. There may be additions. Um, but most of the characters we met in book one will be in book two. And um, mm-hmm. oh, in book three, Bianca is going to need to go to Japan. 
And so mm. this third book is going to be set at least partially in the city of Kyoto, Japan, and I'm very excited about mm. that. Oh, nice. So this is a story about acceptance, power, greed, survival, and love. How did you link all of these issues together and the fact that, well, acceptance and not acceptance too. So how did you link all of these together? Well, you know, it's interesting. I didn't at at first realize I was going to be linking so many things, but I think what happened Mm -hmm. was – it, I tried to make it as much like real life as possible. I'm, I'm very yeah. much a fan of, liter- of, of, of literary sensibilities that are like a slice of life because I think we, re- I think we go to literature for a couple of reasons, for escape or for um, recognition and, and comfort, right? And I think that this might provide both. It's a little bit different from what we're used to every day, but it's also – they're dealing with things that we deal with every day, that things that we recognize and understand. And life is complicated, and all these things are intermingled. And and mm-hmm. I think that my, my main purpose was to try to make it similar to the kinds of things we experience. My main theme was witnessing, right, being um, how quickly we accept a, a person by that persona that they put forward and that even in a small town we might not actually see clearly a person's pain or weakness or needs or even pathology mm-hmm. right there we had a murderer mm-hmm. in this in the village and we didn't even know it and um and so i think that um you know people are going through multiple they have multiple issues at a time they're they're loving or being rejected or they're 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 trying to progress in their um, in their lives, and for some people that means power, and that and it can turn into a very greedy kind of grab. Um, for some people, some people are are striving for survival, and some people are just trying to get a, you know get along. It really just depends. Mm-hmm. And I, I did my best to try to interwo- interweave everybody's weaknesses, and because there's nobody there that doesn't have a weakness or a mm-hmm an issue or something. And I think that's true life. That was really my goal. That is true because if I didn't have flaws, then I would just say it's too perfect. It can't. And if I didn't have a conflict between characters, it would get boring considering some of the ones I've been reading lately. I I can tell you now. Yeah, there was one that just, I won't say what the name of it, I started out really great and at the ending I go like, are you serious? I mean, really. Um, so what is well, you that, know, we know what's next year. Where can we find out more about you and your work? Because this was fun, and the Catskills, of course, bring me back to Breezy Corners and April Sunrise. And there was a hotel, yes. uh, Pine Lodge, that was there also oh. that my grandfather yes. loved. And, of course, of course, Kutcher's, which I think is still there. Yes, of course. I think yeah, it there was one of the, there was there was There was Passover. It was, you know, command performance. You had no choice but to go, but it was fun. So what is next year? Where can we find out more about you and your work so everybody can read Winter Witness? And the title fits, by the way. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. I love the title. Um, so my website, my name, it's www.tinadebelgard.com. Um, and Winter, if you can't find that, if you go to any, uh, I'm going to say Amazon is the easiest way to at least find the title yeah. and my name. Um, on Amazon or Goodreads, you'll see the, the book title, Winter Witness. You'll see my name, com, 
Um, they have bios on both of those. So if you can't find my website for any reason, you know, if you can't spell my name, um, you can find the bios there and they have the websites on Goodreads and Amazon. And um, like I said, I'm working on books too. So if you go to the website, you'll find out, um, Oh, I'm, I'm doing some short story work right now. I have a, a story coming out in Mystery Writers of America Presents. They do oh, their nice. um, anthology. That's nice. Yeah, so that when a strange, nice. the, name of the, the name of the anthology is When a Stranger Comes to Town, and it's, it's available for pre-order, uh, When a Stranger Comes to Town. And I have a story in there called Tokyo Stranger. I'm very excited about it. Um, and I, I'm working on some other short stories. And um, both of you are working on now. Who's the person that's putting that together? The, the anthology. Don't be a stranger. The, the editor. The editor is Michael Carita, and I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it because I'm in there with some very nice names: Joe Hill, Michael Connolly, Lisa Unger, um, S.A. Cosby. I'm trying to think of who else is in there. Um, it's would they send great, me a copy um, to? Re- would they send me a copy to review so I can make it really famous? I just did. Um, uh, Nothing happens after midnight, and Jeffrey Diva came on my show to talk about it. That was so much fun. Oh, okay. Well, I will, I will write to them and see if they can reach out to you on it. Um, that would be nice. Like I said, the edit, the editor is Michael Carreter. Oh, Alistair, Alistair Burke is in there. Um, Steve Hamilton. Oh, nice. Um, so it's a really nice. Uh, and then of course there are uh, ten of us that are up and coming and we're in there as well. We're very excited about that. And I just had a story that was released in um, the Death New England Crime Stories. The most recent edition was called Mask Head and that's out already. And um, one of my stories is in there. But I will pass your information on to both of them um, and see if they would be interested in, in working with you on this. I'm sure they would. That's great. So before I end, I say this at the end of every one of my shows because of the world that's so screwed up out there. Um, the title of my new book is Population Zero. That's all I'm going to say about it. Um, I created worlds. I'm not sure you want to live in any of them, but you might learn how to live better in this one after you read my book. Um, I say this at the end of every show. Just one small ask. Please don't go outside without wearing a mask. It'll save you. That's right. It'll protect me. And maybe this virus will take a holiday and go away forever. But thank you so much, you Tina. And I oh, hope I get the next one when you read. And I hope you do another tour with Cheryl because they're the best. And as soon as my book, I if agree. I ever decide to get it published, comes out, you know they're going to have to do a tour with me too. But thank you oh, so much, will. everybody. Stay warm, stay safe, have a great day, and bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, friends. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.